0: I'm going to direct you to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, we are wrapping up our study of 1 Timothy. And in a couple weeks, we'll begin a study of 2 Timothy. So as we come here to the last passage, at the end of chapter 6, I'll be reading verses 11 through 16 and then verses 20 and 21. This is God's word, please give it your full attention. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Verse twenty, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. I heard recently that they are working on, after all these years, are working on a sequel to the movie Top Gun. The first one actually came out 32 years ago and that's kind of humbling to me, makes me feel old because back in the day when I was a young man, Top Gun really appealed to young men in particular. Had a big impact on young men my age. Tom Cruise's character in that movie Maverick was the epitome of what was considered cool. Good looking, brash, cocky. He gets the girl, shows up the bully, pulls off unbelievable moves in an F-14, and saves the day. I remember reading about it shortly afterward that that movie became so popular, especially among young men, that the Navy sent recruiters to set up tables outside the theater. (laughs) So that when these young men would leave the movie all amped up, there would be the Navy recruiter ready to sign them up for a tour of duty. Matter of fact, uh, the movie, if you know anything about Uh, Music from that era, the the theme from Top Gun, Danger Zone, was very, very popular, and they used it in Navy recruiting commercials to draw these young men in. They did a study and found out, I just found this out recently, they did a study and found out that of the recruits who signed up during that period of time after the movie became popular, 90% of them had seen the movie. I can't help but wonder if they were ever to do another study to find out how many of those young men washed out after a few weeks when they realized that the reality of serving in the military is nothing like the movie portrayed. You know, when you think about it, Jesus was not a good recruiter by this world's standards. In Luke 9, he said, as the crowds were growing around him, He said to them, foxes have holes, birds have nests, and I have nowhere to lay my head. Are you sure you want to follow me? Later on, Luke 14, he was speaking to even bigger crowds that had begun following him. And he said to them that if they want to follow him and be his disciple, they'd better be prepared to hate their own fathers, their mothers, their wives, their children, their brothers, and their sisters. He said they must be willing to take up their own cross and follow him. And he said that they must renounce all that they have, all that they possess in order to follow him. You probably remember John chapter six after Jesus had fed 5,000 people, 5,000 men, which meant many thousands more people that were there that day with only a few loaves of bread and a few fish. The people were so excited about him, the crowds were so big and they were so excited that they wanted to take him to Jerusalem in that very moment and make him king. You remember how he replied to all that? He said, if you wanna be my disciple, you better be prepared to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now again, it takes real spirit given understanding to know what he meant by those hard statements. But the point is, he didn't appeal to recruits the way the world does. He didn't go out there and say, here's what's great about following me and hide from them the hard side, the hard part. Jesus would have never made it as a seeker-sensitive preacher. We're looking here at the end of Paul's letter to Timothy, the first letter that he wrote to him, the first letter that we possess. And we see here that Paul uses very strong language to impress upon young Timothy, this very solemn charge, what it means to be called of Christ, called to salvation and called to serve in his name. And Paul, in what he says here at the end of the letter, shows that he understood what Jesus was saying. That if you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, then you better be prepared to count the cost. You better know what you're signing up for. And that's what he's reminding Timothy of. Timothy had been told this before. He's being reminded again. We all need to be reminded, I think daily, to count the cost, to understand what it means today to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ. What does the life of a faithful disciple look like? And I want to stress again Don't, I mean, we just have this tendency, we've mentioned it many times, to think, well, Paul's talking to a pastor, so this doesn't really apply at least directly to me. No, as a matter of fact, especially in this passage, it applies to all of us directly because he's talking about what it means to be called to be a disciple, what it means to be called to serve Christ as his disciple. And that applies to all of you who are here in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. The first description he gives of a disciple is striking. He says a disciple is someone who is continually fleeing on the one hand and pursuing on the other hand. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, that's your lifestyle. You're always fleeing from something and pursuing something. first thing he says is flee these things. That's the very first words he says in this conclusion. Flee these things. Well, what things is he talking about? Well, in the immediate context, if you go back to verses 3 through 10, the passage we looked at before, you're going to see that he's talking about the type of person and type of service and ministry that the false teachers had in the church. These false teachers he's been warning about again and again and again. And back back in that part of the passage, he says, you know, they were full of pride, they were covetous, they loved money, they craved controversy and conflict, they were full of deceit. So in the immediate context, Paul is saying to Timothy, flee those things. Don't just, he doesn't just say don't do those things or avoid those things. He says flee those things. But I think Paul is actually referring to the bigger context of everything that Timothy had learned was displeasing to the God that he serves. Sin in general. And you think of the other places in the New Testament where it tells disciples of Christ, to flee, to flee the coming wrath, to flee sexual immorality, to flee idolatry, flee the evil desires of youth, he says to Timothy elsewhere. the idea of fleeing from something, running away from something, implies strong physical and spiritual exertion. You're working hard, you're straining to get away from something, you're running away from it. Elsewhere, scripture calls that dying to self, which is a very painful process. It also communicates continual effort. Always be fleeing, he's telling Timothy. As one writer put it, for the disciple of Jesus Christ, it's a lifestyle of constant evasive action when it comes to sin, when it comes to darkness. Think of the story of Pilgrim's Progress. Remember the beginning of the story, the main character, Christian, is, decides to leave. He finds the book. He reads about the promises in the book. And so he decides to leave what the book is called The City of Destruction. But as he's leaving, getting ready to go, his friends and his family come to him and they plead with him to stay, to not leave. And you remember how Christian responded. It says that he put his fingers in his ears and went running out of the city, crying out, life, life, eternal life. Bunyan there is showing us what the Christian life is to be like, always fleeing from the city of destruction. Can your life be characterized that way? When you think about how you live day in and day out. Is your life characterized by fleeing from sin and darkness? Or do you too often toy with sin? Flirt with sin? Try to get up as close to the line of sin as you can without crossing over it. That's not fleeing. I tell this story a lot. I don't know, I heard it somewhere early in my ministry but it's just always been a good illustration to me at this point just a st- simple story about a, a guy who is racked with sin and guilt and he comes to his pastor asking for help and he says to his pastor I, every time I walk through the red light district in the city I get tempted to sin what should I do and the pastor says stop walking through the red light district common sense. You don't want to sin. Stop putting yourself in the neighborhood of sin. Are you fleeing from sin in your life right now? What is your big sin issue? What are you struggling with? Is it gossip? Is it pornography? Is it gluttony? Is it lying? Is it stealing? Is it adultery? What is the sin that you're struggling with now, I just asked a simple question this morning. Are you fleeing from it or are you toying with it, flirting with it? As the Old Testament tells us, you can't take fire into your chest without getting burned by it. The second thing that Paul says is it's not enough to avoid though. It's not enough to run away from sin. The question is, what are you running towards? What direction are you going And so the next thing he says is that we need to pursue something. And he says you need to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. He's talking about the same thing that Jesus was talking about at the beginning of the great sermon on the mount. When Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger and thirst for what is good and right and true. The Sermon on the Mount is about walking that narrow path of righteousness, pursuing righteousness, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. But as you get into the Sermon on the Mount, you realize Jesus isn't just only talking about what we do. He's talking about the attitudes of our heart, how we think, what's going on in our mind, what's going on in our hearts. And so it's in that light that Paul says you need to pursue righteousness. In other words, righteousness is basically a life that conforms inwardly and outwardly to God's law, to God's will. Pursue that. I know you're a long way away from it. Everybody knows you're a long way away from it. Pursue it. Secondly, he says, pursue godliness. And we've talked about that word over and over again in 1 Timothy. Paul uses it repeatedly. It's his favorite word in in 1 Timothy. Pursue godliness. And we define that as... Fearing God, a God-fearing life. A life that is, that is lived in the awareness that God is with us, God is watching over us, God is aware of our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. And live a life that fears him, in other words, reverences him, that kneels to him, that submits to him. And that speaks to the motivation behind your obedience, not just what you do and say outwardly. Then he mentions faith and love. And what's interesting is that in a few moments, he's going to talk about hope. And if you know Paul, you know that those are three of his favorite words. If he ever wants to summarize the life of a disciple, it's faith, love, and hope. And so he mentions them specifically here. That's what a disciple's life is to be striving after. No matter how weak you are in those areas, that's what you're to be striving after. That's Paul's point. And then he mentions steadfastness. And the word there means endurance, perseverance. One writer called it being patient in your circumstances. Not just patient though, but standing firm no matter what your circumstances are. Be steadfast, pursue steadfastness. Pursue spiritual, moral stability in your life. Being patient and steadfast in your circumstances. And then the last one he mentions is gentleness. And 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 that same writer said, if if steadfastness or endurance or perseverance is patience in the midst of your circumstances, then gentleness is patience with others, patience with people, no matter how difficult they may be, especially patience towards your enemies. Paul says, pursue these things. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is continually fleeing from sin and running after righteousness. Righteousness. Godliness, faith, love, hope, steadfastness, gentleness. You know what that means? That means if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, then your whole life is going upstream, going against the current. You are called to a life of struggling to go against the current. I like to canoe, I used to do that a lot, and I still once in a while get a chance to canoe. My favorite river is the Clarion River, up in Cook Forest, and if you've ever been there, it's a very quiet, peaceful river. Very smooth, it's very peaceful to float down the river and just go with the current. But there's been occasions where I've decided, well, you know what, I wanna get up the, I pass something, and I wanna row against that mild, gentle current to get upriver a little way, so I can go to the bank over there or something, and it wears you out very quickly. Even though it's a very mild current, it wears you out quickly to go upstream, and that's what Paul's saying. If you're going to flee from sin and pursue righteousness, you're going to be your whole life is going to be characterized by swimming against the current, and you better be prepared to do that. That's what you're called to. And by the current, I mean. The drive of your own heart. We are still sinners. There is still much of the sin nature that that resides within us. And so we have to swim against our own nature. We have to paddle against our own nature. And it's hard, it's tiring, frustrating sometimes. But more than that, you even have to to the, the forces without you, from outside of you, the negative forces, the enemies, the, 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 the media, whatever's trying to get you to think differently than what God would have you think. The, the, the media that's trying to get you to act differently than God would have you act. This is the current that you're swimming against, that you're paddling against. How are you gonna do that? Well, if you're going to flee from sin and pursue what is good and right, you better know what's true. You better be committed to knowing the truth because discernment is the key to avoiding sin and running away from sin and thirsting after and hungering after and and running towards what is good and right. And so that's why Paul then next actually ups, ups the stakes and he talks about fighting for the faith. He intensifies the imagery. It's one thing to paddle against the current and try to paddle upstream, but it's a lot harder to do if somebody's shooting arrows at you all at the same time. The Greek word that he uses for fight here is the word that we get agony from, or agonize. To fight is to invite pain, to invite suffering. The battle is going to be painful and difficult. Your life is, to, is going to be a life at war from forces without and forces within. And again, the object that we're fighting for, we've said this a number of times in 1 Timothy, Paul's talking about the faith, not your faith, the faith. In other words, the precious truths of God's word. That's what we're to fight for. The same body of truth that Paul elsewhere in this epistle calls the truth, the teaching, the sound words of Jesus, the deposit that's been entrusted to us. The truths that were given to us by the Old Testament prophets and the truths that were given to us from Jesus through his disciples in the New Testament. We are to fight for the faith. This is the faith. This is the gospel. This is the word. We are to fight for the faith. Scripture in our generation. We are responsible, as as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are responsible to make sure that the scriptures are not changed, that they're not added to, they're not taken away from. The Word of God has been entrusted into our hands by God himself to be guarded, preserved, and handed on to the next generation unchanged. That's why Paul ends this letter... By saying with great emotion, when he says, Oh, Timothy, that word in Greek is meant to, it's a very emotional appeal to Timothy. In his last words to Timothy in verses 20 and 21, Paul says, Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. It's a life or death issue, taught Timothy. Guard the truth, preserve the truth. There are enemies from without that are constantly, daily, moment by moment, trying to get the church to change the Word of God. And there are wolves in sheep's clothing within the church, double agents within the church, trying to get the church to change the Word of God. We must fight for the faith. But don't be discouraged. Don't feel overwhelmed. I know the forces that are against us are powerful. The forces that are within us that are against us are powerful. But Paul reminds Timothy in 2 Timothy, just flip over one page to 2 Timothy chapter 1 and listen to what he says. Something very similar, but he adds a great cause for hope. Beginning in chapter 1 verses 12 through 14, listen to what he says there. Paul says, I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. He will guard it, even though it's been entrusted into my hands. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. God will protect his word. Every generation until Christ returns will have God's word because God has promised it, he will accomplish it. If we try to change the word, if we compromise the word, then we will be removed from the battle. But God will ensure that he raises up faithful men and women to fight for the faith, to stand for the truth, And that truth will continue and prosper and change lives until Christ comes again. So to be a disciple of Christ is to fight for the faith. But I wanna remind you, and I think this is important, especially in our theological circles. I wanna remind you that when you're called to fight for the faith, you are not to fight the way the world fights. To not use the methods or the tone or attitude that the world uses to fight for their false teachings what Paul calls, what they falsely consider knowledge. We saw in verses three through 10 that false teachers have an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels, and that they're characterized by pride and envy and slander and evil suspicions. And it's a painful truth that I see that kind of Attitude, that kind of, those kinds of methods being used in the church for the truth. People who hold to biblical truth, yet they use the world's methods to fight for it. And in the process, destroy their cause. Messengers of the truth should never use worldly tactics to get their truth out to the world. Don't adopt the tone and attitude of false teachers, even if what you're advocating for is true. Don't divorce what Paul is saying about fighting the, for the faith from what Paul has already just said about how we are to pursue righteousness. And one of the characteristics of righteousness, the last one he mentions, is gentleness. Fight for the faith, but do it with gentleness. Don't do it in the strength of the flesh. You know, it's funny how our children will teach us more lessons than we teach them sometimes. My, my oldest son taught me a very valuable lesson when he became a teenager. I, uh, it, from the time I was saved as a teenager, I always had a problem with controlling my temper. I had a bad temper, as they used to say. And um, I thought I'd overcome it, and then I got married and found out that it was still very there in a very big way. And then I thought I'd overcome it and then I started having kids and then I really understood how much of a problem I had with my temper. And of course, we always make our biggest mistakes with our first child. I, you know, On behalf of all parents, I apologize to all firstborn because we make a ton of mistakes with our firstborn. Um, and with him, he got the brunt of the worst of my tempers because I was still very, not very far along in my sanctification. And he taught me a valuable lesson because he knew how to really get me angry. He could be very stubborn, he could get me very angry. And he would do something wrong, something sinful, and being the good dad, I would come in to discipline him, and and he would be defiant about it, and he knew how to push my buttons and get me really angry because he knew that once I got angry, I'd lose control of my temper. And then I'd start yelling and and getting sinful myself. Standing for something that was true, he he did something wrong, I was in the right, but I went about it in a sinful way, in the flesh, to try to bully him or whatever. You know how what, what he did to teach me? He would just sit there, he learned this. If he just sat there and listened, let me rant and rave, waited till I was done, blowing off all my steam, and then he would just calmly, peacefully, with great confidence and a little bit of cockiness, he would say, you know, whatever he thought, whether it was right or wrong. And that would make me even madder, because the whole point of yelling at somebody is to get them mad so you can get into a real argument. He wouldn't do it. He refused. He would just calmly, peacefully, re- quietly reply to everything I said to him. And what I hate about that, and you parents have had this, but you have to apologize to your kid. They did something wrong, and you end up apologizing to them because of the way you handled the truth. I feel like the church needs to apologize to the world a lot of the time for the way that we handle the truth. We use sinful methods to try to communicate truth. We need to just trust that it's true. It's not our job to persuade people. It's the Holy Spirit's job to persuade people. We just need to tell them the truth. And we need to do it with gentleness, kindness, even when they're enemies, especially when they're enemies. Because then the focus is on the truth of what the word is that's being presented. So fight for the truth, but do it as a disciple of Christ, representing Christ well. So being a disciple means fleeing from both sin and lies and pursuing both righteousness and truth and then fighting for the truth. But then finally, Paul says there's one more element to what it means to being a disciple of Christ, and it means focusing on the future. And all these things are in, the tense of the original Greek is in the continuing sense. So, you know, always be fleeing, always be pursuing, always be fighting, and always be focusing on the future. Verse 12, he says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, let me just comment on the end of that verse for just a moment. What good confession before what witnesses is Paul talking about? And commentators actually argue a lot about this. And they try to, you know, was was he talking? It could be he's talking about when Timothy became a disciple of Christ, was born again and and professed faith in Christ and joined the church, was baptized, that, you know, that he would have made a confession of faith before many witnesses in the church at that point. Or, as we know, Paul is in several places referred to, to Timothy's ordination when Timothy was called to ministry and he would have stood before God's people and would have had the elders lay hands on him and he would have been ordained to serve as as a a leader in the church, he would have given a good confession before many witnesses in that case. And so they argue back and forth. Which one is Paul talking about? It doesn't matter. The focus is not on when, but the quote is on what Timothy said. Timothy made a good confession before many witnesses and he's accountable for that confession. The question then is what confession did he make? And Paul doesn't say here, but he gives you a clear hint. In just, in just a few words later, where he talks about the good confession that Jesus Christ made. And he tells you when Christ made this good confession. He says it's be, it was when he was before Pontius Pilate. Well, now we can know what Timothy's good confession was because it's the same confession that Jesus made when he stood before Pontius Pilate. You go to John 18, you look at what Jesus said to Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus essentially said, well, yes, I'm a king, but not the kind of king you're talking about. My kingdom is not of this world. I have come as a witness to the truth. And yes, I am a king, but my kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And my kingdom is over all kingdoms. He said, you, Pilate, you wouldn't have any authority if it hadn't been given to you from above. That's where my authority comes from. I am, as Paul will say in a moment, the king of kings and lord of lords. And that's the good confession that Jesus made. And so Paul says, Timothy, you made that good confession. You said that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And you're part of his spiritual kingdom. And his kingdom is here, but it's still coming in a big way. It's already here, but it's not yet what it's going to be. And you are to live in the awareness that Christ is already on the throne and his kingdom is coming. He is returning. And that's what you hope for. That's what you live for. Paul says, take hold of that eternal life. You might say, well, wasn't Timothy already a Christian? Didn't he already have it? Yes, he did. Jesus said it clearly in, in John chapter five, verse 24. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. When you're born again and you profess faith in Christ and you become a disciple of Christ, at that point you have eternal life. It's a gift given by grace alone. You have eternal life. But Paul says to Timothy, take hold of it. And what he's saying is, you have it, but you have only begun to experience it. You have it, but you have no realization whatsoever of how great this life is and how long it's going to be with you. Take hold of what you've already been given. There's so much more to it, and you live for the day when it will be complete. I am convinced, and I've said this more and more, I think, in, in recent years, I am convinced that we as Christians do not think about the second coming of Jesus Christ enough. I think the scriptures tell us that we should be daily thinking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. That that is where our hope comes from. That is taking hold of the life that is already ours but is not yet nearly what it's going to be. Is that Christ's coming is what's going to bring the fullness of that life. And living for that is what motivates me to run away from sin. Why would I run away from sin if I don't have hope of eternal life? Why would I pursue in hunger and thirst after righteousness if I don't have the hope of eternal life? Why would I fight for the faith if I didn't believe that Christ was coming again and it was all worth it in the long run? It's that hope of eternal life. That gives you the daily incentive and motivation to live this hard life of a disciple that Paul's describing here. Paul says in verse 14, I charge you to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. Keep that coming always in your consciousness. You live before the face of God and you live with your focus on the return of Christ. John talks about this in 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. He says, beloved, we are God's children now. You have this eternal life now. We are God's children now. And what, you will, what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Do you get the connection? Your hope is that great day when you're going to see Christ, you're going to see God the Father in all his fullness, as he is, and you will be like him. But that's what drives you today to keep struggling, keep swimming upstream, knowing that this is coming, knowing that it's sure. We purify ourselves because our hope is to one day see and be like him who is perfect in every way. Our flight from sin, our pursuit of righteousness, our fight for the truth is driven by our hope for the future. We shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. That's why Paul ends this this chapter and ends this letter with a doxology, this little worship poetry that he has here at the end in verses 15 and 16. It's what they used to call the beatific vision a picture of God that we see by faith, a glimpse of the glory of God. And Paul uses several phrases to describe God. He says, first of all, God is invincible. He cannot be thwarted. His will cannot be thwarted. He's invincible. And Paul alludes this by saying, he's the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. There is no power, there is no authority on earth that can thwart the will of God. No one, nothing, no institution can say no to God, God's will will be done. Secondly, God is immortal. God is immortal. He says, who alone has immortality? And you might say, well, doesn't the Bible say, I'm immortal, I'm gonna live beyond death? It says he alone has immortality. He alone is immortal in his very essence. Our immortality is derived from his. Our immortality is dependent upon His sovereign will to give us this gift of immortality. He is life itself. He is the source of life, and He is immortal in His very essence. He is not like us. He goes on, Paul goes on to say that God is inaccessible. He says, He who dwells in unapproachable light. And it's just a visual image of how God is transcendent in His holiness. Sin and darkness cannot come into his presence. He dwells in unapproachable light. And then finally, Paul says, God is invisible. No one has ever seen him, he says. No one can see him in this life. Men like Moses talk about seeing God, but what they saw were only representations of God because sinners cannot see God because God is in unapproachable light. He's pure, he's holy, he's transcendent. But isn't that the glory of the gospel? Is that one day we will see him. We will see him as he is, in his fullness, in the fullness of his glory. And that's the incentive for us to flee from sin, to pursue righteousness and fight for the faith. It's the hope that drives us to purify ourselves. Moses spoke for all of us on the mountain when he said to God, God gave him a chance to ask for something. And what did he ask for? The one thing that Moses wanted more than anything else on the mountain. He said, show me your glory. And he wasn't able to see the fullness of God's glory. But one day he will. One day we all will. We'll see him in the fullness of his glory. That's a desire that could not be satisfied in Moses' day. It was much more greatly satisfied in the day of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what John talks about in chapter 1, verse 14. He says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then John comments on that in verse 18 when he says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. When Jesus Christ came, he was the eternal Son of God. He is the eternal Son of God. He is God and man. The fullness of God dwelt in Christ bodily. And so when Philip said to him in John 14, Lord, we just want one thing from you, Lord. Show us the Father. Do you remember how Jesus replied? He said, Philip, don't you know me yet? He who has seen me has seen the Father. And yet, there's still more. We have seen Christ by faith. We have the scriptures to reveal to us the glories of Christ, which reveals to us the glories of the Trinity, the glories of the eternal God. But yet, there's still so much more to come. And you think of where up until this point was the greatest revelation of the glory of God, and I would say it was at the cross. Because at the cross, which was the height, the epitome of shame in the eyes of the world, It was the moment when Jesus Christ died on the cross and said, it is finished, that was the moment when the glory of God shone most brightly and most gloriously on this earth. Because it's at the cross that you see the fullness of the the justice, the holiness, the purity, the inapproachable light that is God reflected in his judgment upon our sin, which Christ bore in his body on the cross. How God feels about our sin was revealed to us as his son bore the separation from his father on the cross as God the Father turned his back upon him. But there, knowing that he was pure and holy and righteous and did not deserve to die for sin and yet he took our sin upon himself, there you see the epitome, the height of grace and mercy and love that God has for his people. The cross is where we, before the second coming of Christ, see the most full display of the glory of God. And that's why the gospel is the center of God's word. Let me speak just for a moment as I close to the unbeliever who may be here. If you're here this morning and you've been thinking about being a disciple of Jesus Christ, you've been considering it, I just want to encourage you first of all to count the cost. Yes, there are earthly benefits. There are earthly uh, uh, blessings that you will experience. But if you become a disciple of Jesus Christ, you're going to enter into this life of swimming upstream. You're going to spend the rest of your life until you die or Christ comes again. You're going to spend the rest of your life fleeing from sin by his grace and pursuing righteousness. You're going to spend your life fighting many different forces internally and externally for the truth, for the faith. It's gonna be hard. It's gonna be a lifestyle of sacrifice and service and self-denial and suffering. But as Paul says, there's the hope. There's the hope that Christ is coming again. And everything that you live for in the past, all the joys of sin, all the things that this world has to offer, it's all going to be destroyed. It's all gonna turn to dust and blow away in a very short period of time. But Christ is coming again, and those who put their faith in him will see God, and they will become like him for all eternity. And that's the abundant life that Jesus talked about. To the believer who's here this morning, this passage is a call to return to that lifestyle. Maybe you've just found it easier lately to just kind of glide, paddle quietly downstream, go with the current for a while. You just got tired of paddling against the current and maybe lately you've just been flowing with the current of this world, flowing with the current of your own sinful desires. Maybe you've just got tired of fleeing from sin and you decide to sit down and rest in it for a while. This passage is a call to return to the narrow way. It's so easy to be like Christian in the story Pilgrim's Progress and take your eyes off of the celestial city and wander off into places like the Slough of Despond or the Doubting Castle or Vanity Fair. Is that where you are this morning? This passage is a call to come back by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the promise. Is the God has given us his spirit. If you're a true disciple of Jesus Christ, and that's the hope for you who are not a believer yet, you think, I can't do that. You're right, you can't. But when you commit your life to Christ, his promise is he gives you his Holy Spirit to enable you. And that's something, if you don't know Christ, you don't know what that feels like yet. You don't know what that's like. It's wonderful. To have the spirit of God with you, changing your heart, changing your mind, transforming you slowly. That assistance is promised to you if you commit your life to Christ and he will bring you to the end of the journey. So let me close by reading Paul talking about his own journey. And here, how Paul didn't just tell Timothy to live this way, this is how he lived. Philippians chapter three, beginning in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I, have all, that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That those of us who are mature think this way. Fleeing, pursuing, fighting, hoping, trusting. That's what it means to be a disciple. And then... As though that's not encouraging enough, let me take you back one chapter to chapter two, verses 12 and 13, where Paul adds this thought. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's his promise for the journey. Let's pray that the spirit will make it more real in our lives today. Father, it's such a privilege to call ourselves Christians to call ourselves disciples of Jesus Christ. We are so thankful for your grace that has made it possible. But now, Lord, we still have many, hopefully many days, weeks, months, and years ahead of us to serve Christ as sinners still in a fallen world. Father, I pray that this rallying charge, this this encouraging spiritual pep talk from Paul to his protege, Timothy, would be an encouragement to us Lord, if anyone's here struggling in their sin, I pray, Lord, that these encouragements would bring them back to the cross and then back to the narrow path that leads to the celestial city. If there's anyone here this morning that has not committed their lives to Jesus Christ, I pray that the clear biblical message of the difficulties and struggles of living as a disciple in this world would not discourage them at all, but they too would see the hope that is in being released from their guilt and sin and, being released from the condemnation of God and being brought into this new life to possess eternal life even today with the hope of experiencing far greater amounts of it in the future, that this would pull them, draw them by the power of the Holy Spirit to commit to this life that will last for eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.